Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, War and Peace, book two, chapter 19. Zirkov thinks he is brave, but his actions tell us otherwise when he fails to deliver the message of retreat to the left flank. What repercussions do you think this cowardice will have? Rostov can't believe the enemy would want to kill him. Is he out of place in this war? Muchberg said, what a chapter. After so much bravado and anticipation about the glories of war, Rostov is a fantastic stand-in for all of us who have never experienced war but perhaps only fantasised about it. Finally immersed in the full reality of battle and with the resulting experience, one of overwhelming confusion, it's wonderfully effective and memorable. It is a great chapter. Grumpy Shakespearean says, I haven't posted in a while, to be honest, I'm struggling with the war chapters and I'm fallen behind a couple of times and then gone through several days at once. Poor Rostov, the idea that he could actually die in a random European field is hitting him. Is he out of place in war? I would argue it's his naivety that is out of place in war. Can we expect him to have truly grappled with his own mortality at such a young age, coming from such privilege? I don't think that's a fair standard. I don't know. The war chapters are making me existential and ranty about the current American military complex and how we try to convince young people that joining it is the best option. Also, what was going on with his wrist? I expected him to find out his hand had been blown off entirely. Is he in shock? Um, Twisted Every Way says, I peeked ahead and Tuesday, the start of book three, will be in for a change of scenery. Um, What's happening with his wrist? Uh, Well, his hand hasn't been entirely blown off, I'll tell you that much. And we do find out a bit more in the coming chapters. Um, Elise 18... No, sorry. Ilsel827583 says, Also struggling with the war chapters, Rostov's point of view in this chapter was helpful to get through it. The descriptions of troop placements are so hard for me to get through. There is a lot of that. And I agree with you. They are, uh, they are a bit difficult. Fragrant Squirrel ninety nine says this was my fir- this is my first time writing. Well, welcome to the podcast and welcome to the combo. These comments are helping me get through these war chapters. It's been a rough go for me too. It seems like most chapters they are bringing in new characters, and I'm already having a trouble keeping up with them. But then finally, something exciting happened, and with Rostov. I was into it. I'm curious about his injury too. While he was standing there watching the French soldier coming at him and he just stood there, I wanted to shout, run, you dummy, like I would watching a movie. Haha. <laughs> I'm looking forward to taking a break from the war chapters. However, I'm afraid I've forgotten all the other characters already. Well, we can do refreshers. That's all good. I don't mind uh, running through a bit of a refresher, especially when we change back to sort of the society in the coming few days. If you want a bit of a refresher on who is, you know, Prince Vasily and Anna Pavlovna and, and all these people. Warren Kovofi says, My key takeaway for, for, from today's chapter is that so many of these characters aren't the brave adults they think they are. The idea of fighting the French seemed so noble and exciting, but now that they are in the thick of battle and facing its grim realities, they show how young they really are. Zerkov is too afraid to get close to the line, and Rostov can't believe that someone who would would actually want to kill him. When fleeing the French, Tolstoy describes how he runs quickly with the swiftness he had playing tag. 
I think he's trying to show many in this campaign are really just kids beneath their uniforms. Yeah, that line stood out to me as well, because you can imagine when he is just running from the enemies, you would have that same sense of being chased as a kid playing tag. Uh, also, I meant to bring up the general and the colonels arguing over their position. I couldn't believe that they essentially played a game of chicken with one another at the front. Meanwhile, their troops are getting flanked by the French. It seemed very juvenile, especially considering that these are two commanding officers. Psychological Bag 414 says, I've not been getting on with these war bits, but this chapter hit me. The moment it changed from a game into a real life in the truest fashion, the moment it stopped making sense. Yeah, that's the thing with the war chapters, is they are hard to get through. The war chunks can be a bit slow. They can also be very exciting. But I would say a lot of my favourite moments in the whole book, much like today's chapter, um, happen during the war bits. So they're kind of diamonds in the rough, you know. Ripster66 said, wow, what a chapter. Nothing is going quite the way any of our characters thought it would. Zerkov can't bring himself to go to the front to deliver the message. He can't even admit that to himself and instead looks where he knows the commander won't be. He can claim he tried, but in fact he was too scared to get to the front. It's a critical message and I think there will be dire consequences for not having delivered it. Yeah, I love that he kind of even fools himself, doesn't he? Like he's he's too scared to go where he has to go to deliver the message. But he even sort of tricks himself into being able to say, well, I did try, they just weren't where I was looking. Deep down he knows, though, what he did. He knows what he did. He's just maintained that plausible deniability. The entire account of Rostov's charge was riveting. Told from his perspective, you can sense his disorientation and shock. He's not out of place. He just didn't know what battle would actually be like. One can intellectualise strategy in battle, but the reality of bullets flying by your head and the realisation that the enemy is actively trying to kill you is a very different thing. That scene was so visceral and compelling, I felt scared for Rostov that he would be killed or taken captive while still so clearly in shock and confused. I hope the sharpshooters save the day for him. I love how there's really no pause between him charging on his horse and getting up off the ground and everyone's gone. Like, there's no kind of gap. It just goes from one sentence to the next because from his perspective, that's what happened. Everyone just vanished. In actual fact, he must have knocked himself unconscious and then sat up and sort of the battle was over, or at least the battle that he was in. Uh, Twisted Every Way said, the Rostov part was the most interesting. I love how he was like, who would want to kill me? Everyone is so fond of me. And the fact that he was charging forth to hack the French to bits, but was so shocked that they would be charging from the other side to do the same. Definitely so naive, our Rostov. Zorkov is a coward and possibly led to Rostov getting injured. This battle is definitely not going well. One Hand Will said, Good bloody chapter. I'm in love with this image of the dividing line Tolstoy keeps returning to. I think Rostov will make it out of this, but for a while there I thought it might have been his end. Very cool. Alright, let's read the next chapter, shall we? We're in the heat of battle. We can't stop here. Let's go. Chapter 20 goes like this. The infantry regiments had been caught unawares in the woods, and having been jumped, they now ran out of the woods in disorderly crowds, the various companies getting muddled up. One soldier, whose nerve was failing him, spewed the words, cut off, for all to hear a stupid thing to say in the heat of battle, and his words then infected the whole crowd with his panic. Surrounded, cut off, we're fucked, shouted the fleeing men. 
The generals, the general realised as soon as he heard the shots and the cry from behind that something real bad had happened to his regiment, and the thought that he, with his long and squeaky clean record as a bloody excellent officer, might be blamed by headquarters for sucking at his job or being negligent shook him so bad that he suddenly forgot his rivalry with the dick-headed cavalry colonel and forgot his own dignity in general, and above all he forgot how dangerous the situation was and that he could be killed, and he grabbed the crupper of his saddle and spurred his horse, galloped to the regiment under a storm of enemy bullets which fell all around him but miraculously missed him. All he cared about was finding out what the hell was happening and fixing it, no matter the cost, any mistake he might have made, so that his 22-year track record as a bloody excellent officer would remain unsullied. He managed to gallop through the French without harm and reached a field behind the trees where our men, despite orders to the contrary, were running off down the hill. This was a moment of truth, the kind of moment of moral hesitation which decides battles. Would this mess of scrambling soldiers heed the voice of their commander, or would they ignore him and continue scrambling? Turns out, no, they would not, despite his fierce shouts, which used to scare the shit out of the soldiers. And despite his face being bright purple and distorted to the point of being unrecognisable, and the way he flourished his sabre, the soldiers continued to flee, talking, firing their guns into the air and disobeying orders. The moment of moral hesitation which decides battles was clearly a moment of sheer panic. The general had a coughing fit from yelling too much and from the gunpowder smoke thick in the air and stopped in despair. It seemed to him that all was lost, but at that moment the attacking French stopped, turned and ran back, disappearing from the outskirts for no apparent reason, and Russian sharpshooters appeared from in the copse of trees. It was Timokin's company which was the only group to maintain its order in the wood, and after laying in wait, hidden in a ditch, had now launched out and ambushed the French. Timokin had a full, had gone full psycho on them, rushing them with nothing but his little sword and a shit-ton of drunken rage that surprised the French so much that they dropped their muskets and legged it. Dolokhov, running besides Timokin, clashed with the Frenchman and killed him with his sword, then seized a surrendering French officer by his collar. The scrambling Russians turned back, reformed into their battalions, and the French, who had so nearly cut off our left flank, were pushed back. Our reserve units were able to jump into the action too, and the fight was drawing to an end. The regimental commander had stopped near a bridge, with Major Ekonomov letting the retreating companies pass by them, when a soldier came up to him, came up to the commander and grabbed onto his stirrup, almost leaning on him. The man was wearing a bluish broadcloth coat. He had no knapsack or cap. His head was all bandaged up, and over his shoulder was a French munition pouch. He was holding an officer's sword. The soldier was pale. His blue eyes looked confidently into the commander's, and he smiled. Though the commander was, giving, was busy giving instructions to Major Ekonomov, he couldn't help noticing the soldier. Your Excellency... I've got you two trophies, said Dolokhov, pointing to the French sword and pouch. I've taken an officer prisoner. I stopped the company. Dolokhov was puffed, trying to catch his breath and speaking in abrupt bursts. The whole company saw it. Please don't forget this, Your Excellency. All right, all right, replied the commander, and turned to Major Ekonomov. 
But Tolokov didn't leave. He untied the handkerchief that bandaged his head and removed it to show the crusty blood in his hair. A bayonet wound, and I didn't even leave the front. Don't forget, Your Excellency. Tushin's battery had been completely forgotten, and it was only at the very end of the action that Prince Bagration, hearing the cannons going off in the centre, remembered and sent his orderly, closely followed by Prince Andre, to, to order the battery to retreat as quickly as possible. When all the troops defending the battery had been moved away by someone's order during the action, the battery kept up the firing anyway, and was only left untouched by the enemy because the French didn't expect that anyone would have the ball would have balls big enough to keep firing from four completely undefended cannons. On the contrary, the gusto of the battery led the French to believe that here, in the centre, was the main concentration of Russian forces. Twice they tried to attack this point, and twice they had their asses handed to them, being driven back by grape shot from the four lone guns on the hill. It was very shortly after Prince Bagration had left that Tushin had succeeded in setting fire to Sean Graburn. Look at them scurrying, it's burning, check out the smoke, fuck yes, check out the smoke, the smoke, exclaimed the artillerymen, brightening up. All four guns were being fired into the burning village without waiting for orders. The artillerymen egged each other on at each shot. Nice one. Oh, good hit. Look at it go. Fuck yes. The fire was rapidly spreading by the breeze. The French columns that advanced out of the village went back, but as if to seek revenge for this failure, the enemy set up ten guns to the right of the village and started firing them at Tushin's battery. Our artillerymen were so giddy in their success at cannonading the French that they only noticed this battery when two balls and then four more crashed among our guns, one knocking two horses to the ground and another tearing off the leg of an ammo wagon driver. Their spirits were soaring now, though, and could not be diminished, only changed into a different vibe. The horses were replaced with some from a spare gun carriage, the wounded were carried off, and their four-gun battery was turned against the enemy's ten-gun one. Tushin's comrade officer had been killed early in the engagement, and 17 of the 40 men of the gun crews had been eliminated over the course of one hour. But the artillerymen were still as lively and giddy as ever. Twice they noticed the French at the bottom of the hill, and twice they fired grape-shot at them. Little Tushin, with his piss-weak awkward movements, asked his orderly constantly to refill his pipe, Give us another refill for that. And spilling sparks from it, he ran forward, shading his eyes with his small hand to look at the French. Smash em, lads, he kept saying, and he'd grab the guns by the wheel and unscrew the screws himself. Amid the smoke, deafened by the incessant cannons which made him jump every time, Tushin ran from gun to gun, his nose warmer clenched in his teeth, now aiming cannons, now counting charges, now giving orders to replace dead or wounded horses and harnessing fresh ones and always squealing loudly in his wimpy little voice. His face became more and more intense. Only when a man was killed or wounded did he turn away with a frown, shouting angrily at the men who, as is usually the case, hesitated to pick up a body or a wounded man. His soldiers, who were for the most part handsome lads and, as usual in a battery, a head and shoulders taller and twice as muscly as their officer, all looked at their commander like bashful children, unsure of what to do, and their expression was undoubtedly a reflection of his own. Because of the deafening uproar and the need to focus and keep moving, 
Tushin didn't feel even the slightest pang of fear, and the thought of being killed or badly wounded never crossed his mind. On the contrary, he became more and more ecstatic. It felt to him like yonks ago, maybe even a full day ago, that he'd first seen the enemy and fired the first shot, and that his little corner of the field where he currently stood was a dear and long familiar place to him. Though he remembered everything, considered everything, and did everything as perfectly as the very best of officers, he did so in a strange state of delirium. He'd think he was as high as a kite or drunk. From the deafening sounds of his own guns around him, the whistle and thud of enemy cannonballs from the red and sweaty faces of the crews bustling around the guns, from the sight of the blood of men and horses from the little puffs of smoke on the enemy's side, always followed shortly by a cannonball streaking past and walloping into the earth, a man, a gun, or a horse. From all these things a fantasy arose and filled his head and filled him with pleasure. In his imagination the enemy cannons were not cannons at all, but tobacco pipes, from which puffs of smoke were blown now and then by an invisible smoker. Ah, he's puffing again, muttered Tushin to himself as a small cloud rose on the hill and was carried up and to the left by the wind. Now watch for the ball and throw it back. What are your orders, Your Honour? asked nearby artillerymen who heard him muttering. Nothing, only a shell, he answered. All right, it's our Matvevna's turn, he said to himself. Matvevna, or daughter of Matthew, was the name his delirious mind had given the furthest gun of the battery, which was a large one with an old-fashioned pattern. The French were like ants swarming around their guns. The handsome and pissed-drunk man who was the number one on the second gun's crew was, in his fantasy world, known as Uncle. Tushin looked at Uncle more than anyone else and was enthralled by his every movement, the sound of musketry at the foot of the hill, now diminishing, now increasing, seemed like someone's breathing. He listened carefully to the ebbs and flows of the sounds. Ah, breathing again, breathing, he muttered to himself. He imagined himself to be a giant, as tall as a tree, powerfully throwing cannonballs at the French with both hands. All right, Metvevna, old girl, don't fail us now, he was saying as he moved from the gun, when an unfamiliar voice called out over his head. Captain Tushin, Captain Tushin. Tushin turned around, startled. It was the same officer who had driven him out of the booth at Grunth. He was shouting at him in breathless voice. Are you crazy? You've been ordered to retreat twice and you... Ugh, why are they hating on me? Thought Tushin, looking with alarm at his superior. I, uh, nothing, he muttered, putting two fingers to his cap. I... But the staff officer did not finish his orders to Tushin. A cannonball whizzed over his head, causing him to duck and bend over his horse. He paused, and just as he was about to continue speaking, another cannonball whizzed past. He turned his horse and galloped the hell out of there. Retreat! Everyone, retreat! he shouted from a distance as he legged it. The soldiers laughed. A moment later, another adjutant arrived with the same order. It was Prince Andre. The first thing he saw while riding up to Tushin's battery was an unharnessed horse with a fucked-up leg laying beside the harnessed horses and screaming piteously. Blood was gushing from its leg as from a spout. Among the limbers there were the bodies of several dead men. One cannonball after another shot overhead as he approached and a jolt of fear ran down his spine. But in realising he was scared, he roused himself. I can't be scared, he thought, and dismounted slowly among the guns. He delivered the order and stayed at the battery. 
he decided he would remain present while the guns were removed from their positions and withdrawn. Together with Tushin stepping over the dead bodies and under the terrible fire of the French, he set about removing the guns. A staff officer was here a minute ago, but he pissed off, said an artilleryman to Andre. Not like you, Your Honour. Prince Andre didn't speak to Tushin. They were both so busy that they didn't seem to notice one another. Only two of the four cannons remained intact, and once they were limbered up and ready to roll, they began moving down the hill, leaving one shattered gun and one unicorn gun behind, and only then did Prince Andre ride up to Tushin. Well, until we meet again, he said, holding out his hand to Tushin. Oh, goodbye, you legend, said Tushin. You absolute legend. Goodbye, my dear mate. And for some unrenown reason, tears were filling his eyes. All right, there we go. Another chapter down. I just need to make a comment there, because I wrote only two of the four cannons remained intact. But I think I might have mistranslated that, because I know they only got away with two of the four cannons. But I'm not sure if it was only two that were intact. We'll check up on that anyway in the coming chapters. All right, guys, thanks for listening to that. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow.